0: and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Jennifer Souter. She's an assistant attending pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with expertise in thoracic pathology and cytopathology. We'll hear their conversation about how a WHO book comes together, as well as what's new in thoracic pathology, and how a pathologist can be a national record holder in powerlifting. You can find Dr. Jang on Twitter at Sarah underscore Jang and Dr. Souter is on Twitter at JL underscore souter. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang.
1: Hello and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests in and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah underscore Jang. I'm so thrilled today to have as our guest, Dr. Jennifer Souter. Dr. Souter is an assistant attending pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York with expertise in thoracic and cytopathology. And you can find her on Twitter at J L underscore S A U T E R. Welcome, Dr. Souter. So excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So just to start off with, we always ask people, where did you grow up and did you always want to do medicine?
2: So I grew up in a rural town in Minnesota. Called Gibbon, Minnesota. There's approximately 800 people that live in Gibbon, Minnesota. Big city. <laughs> and now I live right next to Manhattan. So it's definitely a different location than where I grew up. Gibbon is approximately an hour and a half from Minneapolis, it's a farm town. And growing up, I realized that I was interested in medicine when I was in junior high, high school. I was interested in uh, science and thought about either going into medical school or perhaps getting a PhD and going. A- into research. I wasn't really clear on that, but I always had an interest in, in maybe medicine. We did a lot of hobby farming out where I lived and we we butchered a lot of chickens. <laughs>
1: <And> so- <laughs> I have chickens. We don't butcher them, but I can kind of relate to having a, a hobby farm kind of situation yes. going on.
2: So it's something people here may not understand in in the city, but out where I grew up, we we butchered a lot of chickens and I was involved in in that process. And so I thought anatomy was really interesting and I always really liked biology. And so when I went to college, I majored in biology. I went to St. Olaf College in Minnesota. And during college, I did decide that I was interested in the medical school route and, and did apply for medical school. I spent two years at the University of Minnesota in a junior scientist position, partly to get exposed to research and also to see if graduate school was something I would be interested in. But I ended up going to medical school. And at that time, I thought that I would become a family physician and and move back to rural Minnesota. The medical school I went to was in Duluth, Minnesota, and most of the medical school class were people from small town, rural areas in Minnesota, like myself. And the majority of those graduates do end up going into family medicine and many stay in rural areas of Minnesota. And the the mission of the school is to graduate doctors who will serve rural Minnesota. So I was a huge failure for the school because I did not go go into family medicine. And I ended up leaving Minnesota and and moving to New York City as a pathologist. But I think- before I started medical school, I didn't really know anything about pathology. I didn't know what pathology was. Family medicine seemed like the most straightforward option. It's what I sort of understood. And right away in my first year medical school class, we did a little bit of histology, but very quickly we got into pathology because it was an organ-based curriculum. And so pathology was introduced fairly early on. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the visual part of pathology and being able to actually see normal histology, abnormal histology, tumors, neoplastic disease processes, just with our eyes. And Back then, we did use microscopes in histology. Much of our pathology ended up being sort of PowerPoint slides and recognizing things on tests. So there wasn't a ton of microscopy, but there was a little bit. So I I knew I had an interest in pathology pretty early on. And so when I went into my third and fourth year, I did purposely take pathology electives because I knew I was very interested in pathology and I wanted to see if this was something I would really want to do as a career. But I also was considering internal medicine probably as my next choice because I really did enjoy the physiology of internal medicine. But then after my third year of medical school and spending several weeks in surgical pathology and hematopathology, I did end up applying to pathology residencies. And that's
1: how I got into pathology. I think it's so interesting because, you know, you talk about being interested in initially family practice and then internal medicine. And even though on the surface, I don't think folks think, oh, that's really similar. I've heard a lot of people draw the connection that if you're really interested in being a generalist and kind of seeing disease from all over the body, learning about disease from all over the body, all age groups, family practice and internal medicine and pathology are areas where you kind of get to deal the whole spectrum of ages, diseases, organ systems. And of course, both of us now are sub-specialized in pathology. But I think that there is that, at least in residency training, you are a real generalist because you're looking at not only every organ system, but then you're also doing clinical pathology for a lot of us doing ABCP. So you do have to learn a ton of material. And for those of us who have that real curiosity to learn about everything, I think pathology is a great
2: place. I think that's a really valid point. And I know when I started residency, I at that point didn't know that I would go into thoracic pathology. I very much enjoyed surgical pathology. I did APCP training. And in the the beginning, I was definitely interested in general pathology and maybe would have even pursued a general pathology position. But over time, uh, since I knew I was interested in academics, it just, you know, later in training, it it made more sense to go into a subspecialty just because most academic practices are, are... structured that way at this point in time. But I did a cytopathology fellowship. And so as you know, cytopathology is still very general. So we are still making diagnoses throughout the entire body. And then I also did a general search path fellowship at Mayo Clinic I did not do a subspecialty fellowship. And the structure of the fellowship at Mayo Clinic was really flexible which was really wonderful because we did seven blocks or months of general pathology which was mostly in the frozen section area which is just a very high volume surgical pathology general surgical pathology experience so that was very helpful i knew i was going to be taking this job at msk and so i was able to tailor my elective time to pulmonary pathology and i did four blocks of pulmonary pathology in Rochester. And then I was able to spend two blocks of my training in Arizona. And I did a a pulmonary pathology elective there when Thomas Colby and Kevin Leslie were still there. It was right before they actually retired. So, and I worked with Thomas Colby quite a bit during that elective, which was just a wonderful experience. So I think that... And of course, in our subspecialty practices, we are still dealing with general pathology because we get metastases, especially in the lung, we get metastases from all over. And so, I think that general training is really important and really interesting.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I do cytopathology as well, definitely, and I do general frozen as well. So, me too. I do. Def- yeah. yeah. So, so we have the opportunity to kind of keep our hand in, keep updated, at least still feel like we see pathology from all over. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, some mornings I do feel like a triage pathologist where I say, okay, we're gonna send this out for this case for consult to our thoracic colleagues, this case for consult to our GI colleagues. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about being in a big academic place is that you have so many wonderful colleagues with subspecial expertise in other areas that you can send and get that help. It's still fun to see everything. And so tell me a little bit about the projects you're working on in lung pathology. You've been incredibly productive.
2: So that is definitely one of the advantages of subspecialty practice and why subspecialty practice makes the most sense in academics is that we have the opportunity to really dive deep into specific topics, which I really enjoy. In my area of thoracic pathology, my subspecialty interest is actually in pleural diseases, specifically mesothelioma. I also am involved with studies regarding biomarkers for selection of patients for immunotherapy, which includes a lot of non-small cell lung carcinoma. I've been interested in unique thoracic tumors, such as SMARC A4 deficient thoracic tumors, which have several names. <laughs> I have a new name in the, in the current WHO. Uh, so those are my main areas of interest, but honestly, most of my time is focused uh, on mesothelioma. I also have maintained some interest in non-neoplastic long, I have published on COVID pneumonitis because we had an opportunity to review COVID autopsy cases during the pandemic. And I'm also, it's not published, but it's going to be submitted soon. I have a study looking at immune checkpoint related pneumonitis. So What I love about thoracic pathology is that in addition to the tumor pathology, there's a lot of non-neoplastic pathology as well, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in thoracic pathology to begin with. And so for my research, I am still interested in keeping a little bit in touch with the non-neoplastic work, but most of my time has been devoted to mesothelioma. And it's been really a great experience here at MSK to be able to really dive deep into a tumor like that. We have a number of clinical trials. We have a, a disease management team that's very active in mesothelioma. And so I do a lot of collaborative work with our oncologists radiation oncologists, and surgeons. And so that's been a really enriching experience. And we have a lot of collaborative work that we've published. My personal interests are obviously in pathology, and we have a very robust molecular pathology lab. And so we've sequenced a number of mesotheliomas. And so we're working on looking at our molecular data in our cohort of sequence mesotheliomas, we have approximately 300 tumors that are sequenced. And and the TCGA, for example, was published a few years ago, and it's, it's a much smaller cohort. So we have great resources at MSK and I've worked really closely with molecular pathologists in this work. Mark Ladani has been a tremendous mentor and we have a new faculty member who was a thoracic fellow with us and a molecular fellow. His name is uh, Stu Yang and he's been working with me on the molecular data, which has been really helpful. I've learned a lot from him, even when he was a fellow because of his molecular expertise. Another way that I've been involved with mesothelioma is I've been involved with the International Mesothelioma Panel. Very early on, I I started to work with this group, and this has been tremendously helpful for me in terms of getting to know other expert mesothelioma pathologists around the world and working on collaborative studies within this group. And this is what essentially led to working on the WHO classification. So in 2018, we held an interdisciplinary meeting in Lyon, France, which included pathologists, surgeons, molecular pathologists, oncologists. And we discussed basically all of the updated literature uh, at that point in terms of what sort of pathologic features we know can be prognostically significant in mesothelioma and which might be useful in reporting uh, to help oncologists make management decisions. And so we intentionally included oncologists in that meeting. So they could tell us specifically, this is what's helpful. So for example, there was a grading system that had been developed and validated in multiple studies for epithelioid mesothelioma, because there's some patients with epithelioid mesothelioma actually survive for several years whereas with biphasic and sarcomatoid, all the patients do poorly. And some epithelioid tumors do poorly as well, but we're trying to figure out what sort of information can we provide in our pathology reports to help uh, oncologists know like, oh, this tumor might actually do better, or this tumor might do worse. And so grading has been shown to be helpful, but we had a three-tiered grading system, grade one, grade two, grade three, because as pathologists, it's very easy to grade in that way. And oncologists- Said, well, it's really hard for us to treat when you give us three grades. It's hard for us to treat grade two. What does that mean? And so, based on that feedback, we devised a two tiered system, low versus high grade, because that to them is more helpful. And so, this is what is currently recommended in the current WHO and it's being studied in terms of its prognostic utility. So, we met in Lyon and we talked about all of the literature and we got feedback from oncologists. And then we put that together in a white paper that we published in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, describing these are all of the histologic features and pathology, including some molecular findings that are possibly prognostically useful in mesothelioma and should be incorporated in the next WHO. And then when it came time to write the WHO, we incorporated quite a bit of that in the new classification. So this update actually has some changes in mesothelioma, which hasn't really happened in many years. (laughs) There have been a lot of changes in lung cancer in the last 10-15 years. I mean, since you and I probably started training till now, that has been completely changed in terms of the classification. But mesothelioma sort of lagged in terms of really major changes to the classification. And this 2021 classification does have some changes in the histology. And definitely over time, there will be more advances with more molecular information as more mesotheliomas become profiled.
1: So interesting to hear about the process and, you know, talking about the multidisciplinary nature of the work, right? I think that's one thing that I don't think I realized as a medical student when I was coming into pathology, that so much of what we do is really collaborative. And that I think is actually a really rewarding part of our jobs is getting to be at tumor board, talking to our oncology colleagues, our surgical colleagues, and basically developing these relationships where we work as a team to help treat patients. And I think that's wonderful to hear that that element is present in creating the new who, for instance, thinking about things like the two-tiered system, which I agree, that would be more straightforward to use, right? But for whatever reason, we like to use three in pathology. Uh, I think it's easy
2: for us to look at tumor uh, cells and say, oh, that's, you know, very mild in terms of atypia. That's, very marked. And then there's a bunch yep. in the middle. <laughs> and there's a bunch in the middle. Yeah, a cytopathologists, we get a lot of middle ground, right? Yes. The intermediate
1: <laughs> cases.
2: And but def- being so, yeah. definitive about low versus high is much more challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is, again, probably why we have so many three-tiered systems. So was it You know, having met in person initially and then having to do the rest of the work, presumably a lot of it remotely via Zoom or via email, was that challenging um, to come up with kind of consensus
2: It actually worked out very well because meeting in person was essential. That was wonderful because we all got to meet and see and get to know everyone. I was fairly new to the group because I started in 2016. And so we met in Lyon in 2018. So for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to get to know a lot of people in the field of mesothelioma early on. From that meeting, we as a group put together that white paper. So we actually did a lot of writing Right out after that meeting. And the writing was done mostly by by email. Andrew Nicholson was the first author on that paper. And he and I worked quite a bit on the first draft. And then we distributed among the group. And there was a lot of good email feedback. So when it came time to writing the WHO, we had that document to help us. And so that was helpful. When it came time to writing the WHO, I drafted the the first draft and included various co-authors in various subjects. For example, the molecular pathology was an area that uh, I definitely needed assistance with. And then distributed among the group, got a lot of feedback and put together the final draft. And then the way the process works is that the editorial staff actually edits the last version. And they typically meet in Lyon all of the editors of the book, but that actually didn't happen because we started working on it. The, it was supposed to come out in 2020 and we started working on it prior to 2020. The meetings in Lyon were supposed to be in March or April of 2020. So obviously that didn't happen and they had to move to Zoom format. So I think the in-person meetings are so enriching to us, but I also think we can accomplish a lot on Zoom.
1: Absolutely. I
2: think that's something we've learned uh, with the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's convenient and probably has less of a carbon footprint, even, you know,
2: because it, you think about it, everyone flying from, you know, Japan, the United States, parts of Europe to get together is definitely a luxury.
1: Agree. It is fun to kind of establish those relationships in person, though, right? And I think
2: for people, especially junior faculty who are just starting the last two years, it's really hard to establish those relationships virtually, even within the institution. Because here we've been pretty serious about social distancing. And in the last few months, we've kind of gone back to a virtual sign out. Our thoracic tumor board, for example, is virtual. It's mm-hmm. been virtual for two years. Yep. Ours, so it's really ours too, difficult yeah. for junior faculty who just started in the last two years to get to know people. And there are new oncologists in our group that I don't know who they are. Because oh yeah, never, it's totally the same We used same to here. meet every Friday morning uh, on site and and now we don't. Yeah, it's absolutely the same here.
1: We've been very strict about it. So we've had only virtual grand rounds. We've had only virtual tumor board. And I agree, we've had new folks start. And one of my new surgical colleagues, we've been emailing about research protocols. We've been at the tumor board. We've been talking a ton. I didn't meet her in person until I think I just happened to be on Frozen and she brought me a Frozen a couple of weeks Mexico, you know, <laughs> it's
2: a good place so to meet
1: people. Yeah. 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 And I think that I'm personally very feisty. So I think my personality still shines through at Tumor Board. But I do miss that kind of just catching up informally with people about projects or things outside of work. It's nice, though. So we have two hospitals out, kind of one further in Durham, one in Raleigh. And so it's nice for those oncologists out there to be able to, to be included. As well. Yeah. And so that way there's pros and cons to it.
2: And I have to admit, I don't plan on. Going in at seven AM for tumor board ever again. I mean, I'm not complaining about this situation. <laughs> There's definitely some benefits. There's
1: definitely some benefits. So great. Well, let's talk a little bit about your interests outside of pathology. First off, what do you think you would be if you weren't a pathologist or weren't in
2: medicine? That's a really good question. I think that I probably would have been a teacher like very realistically, what would have been my path had I not gone to medical school. That's probably what I would have done at that time. And I actually was a teacher (laughs) for a very brief period of time because I wasn't intending to be a teacher, but my husband is a teacher and we spent... A few years in Minneapolis after college, and I worked at the University of Minnesota, like I said, as a junior scientist. I had really great experience there. I think that's where I really started to love research. I thought it was really fun to do research projects and and to write, and I really enjoy writing. So that was a really good experience. And then my husband, he just could not get a teaching job in the Twin Cities. It was a very competitive market. He had no experience because he had graduated from college, done his student teaching, and wasn't getting a job. And he was working at Starbucks, which was not his passion. Although they have nice benefits, <laughs> they have health insurance. Actually, so was actually- I just say like coffee is in Every some ways coffees, my passion. Yeah, yeah, the coffees were delicious, so that was <laughs> but, you know it wasn't really his lifelong you know career aspirations. Sure. And so he found a job teaching in a town called War Road, Minnesota. Literally War Road. It was na- named by Native Americans, and it was sort of a war path between two towns. Huh. He went up to interview for this job. He took the job. He asked me about it before he took the job. We were going to get married in July, and this would have been the school year after that. And so he went and he interviewed and they offered him the job. So he called me and asked me what I thought. I didn't even go there. I thought it was going to be this beautiful uh, place like uh, Duluth or anywhere along the North Shore because War Road is on a big lake. It's on Lake of the Woods. I thought it was going to be beautiful, Northern Minnesota, like what I had was familiar with growing up, going up to the North shore. So I said, sure. And so then he and his dad went and looked at houses and they found a house for us and they bought the house without me looking wow. at it. Like, <laughs> it sounds good. So I moved up there with him and I, there was no job for me. And so when he was accepting the job, he said, I, I could come here and work, but my wife needs a job. <laughs> And So they asked what I do. And it turns out they didn't have a chemistry teacher, he was teaching mm-hmm. biology, they needed a biology or a chemistry teacher, and he could do either. And so for whatever reason, it made more sense to have him be the biology teacher. And they said, we could have her be a chemistry teacher here, even though she doesn't have a teaching license, because we have no applicants that qualify. And so we can have her teach on a variance for mm-hmm. a period of time with the understanding that she would pursue her education license if she plans to stay so we said okay <laughs> so wow. we went up there we moved into this house that i hadn't seen i saw some pictures <laughs> and uh, we i started teaching chemistry it was not a beautiful northern uh minnesota that i had known it was much different it's very boggy and swampy huh. it's a beautiful place but it's definitely not the, the north shore of lake superior and one thing about Warroad is it starts snowing at the end of september and it snows until May. It's just just winter all the time. A lot of (laughs) snow. Very cold. And we we taught high school together. I taught chemistry. He taught biology. And then I had played volleyball in high school and in college, and he had played football. So we both have always been athletes. And so I ended up working with the volleyball team. I was a volunteer coach for a while. We didn't have children, so we just needed things to do. (laughs) Uh, He was a football coach, and I started working with the volleyball team. And then over time, they gave me a volleyball coaching position for the junior high. And I got really involved in that. And it was a really fun experience. So we were there for two years. And during that time, I had no desire to get my education degree. And I studied for the MCAT. <laughs> and <laughs> I took it in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which was the nearest town. Oh, my. And then actually Winnipeg, Canada was actually the nearest big town. <laughs> but the nearest big town in the US was Grand Forks. And uh, then I ended up going to medical school in Duluth after our two years there. Wow. So I think I would have become a teacher and I enjoyed it. It was a good experience. It's very, very hard work. And I still think even though medicine's hard work, I think teaching is even more difficult, at least for me, but my husband, he's a natural performer. So for him, it's like <laughs> a perfect fit. He loves it. But for me, it was just a lot of work. It's, it's the kind of thing where you're never going to make everyone happy. And mm. every parent thinks their child is gifted and, brilliant. <laughs> 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 and so it's Stressful dealing with parents. I think. I guess in every job you have to deal with people. It can be mm-hmm. stressful dealing with patients and clinicians, but I think that never goes away. But I just, I did really enjoy it. But I would say it was a lot of work. And I, and I do find medicine and pathology as a really good fit for me. And there's still abundant teaching. There's opportunities still so much teaching in pathology. Yeah. So so it was a good experience. It was good for two years, and and then I went to medical school. But I think that's probably what I would have done. Most likely, mostly because. I mean, I grew up in a very small town. I had a pretty sheltered upbringing in terms of what opportunities are in the world. And, and so that's probably what I would have done. Me, I don't know. Now I feel like I'd like to be either a, a chef, but I don't think I'd like to work at a restaurant. I'd I would like, like that a would sh- be
1: stressful too. I, yeah, with I the think that'd be really
2: hard. Yeah. I think I would like to be a chef where I could just work for myself. I don't know. I just want to cook food for myself. <laughs> I really want to but I was flying the other day and I thought, Oh, man. I think I would really like being a flight attendant if I could only work in first class (laughs) (laughs) because everyone's so happy there. And it's like so fun when the flight attendant brings out a nice little tray of of treats and they present Mm -hmm. it really nice. And I just think I like because I used to be a server in restaurants when I was Mm -hmm. growing up. And I really like that. I like serving people and making people happy. So I think maybe when I retire, I might become a flight attendant. We'll see.
1: So really, we're just getting the sense that you're really a people person, whatever you would be doing, whether it was pathology, being a flight attendant, being a teacher, you like working with people. Or at least um,
2: helping people. Helping people, helping. And the flight attendants, the best because you just give them what they want, (laughs) and they're happy. (laughs) For teaching, you might not give them what they want. They might not want to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. So you've mentioned that you've always been an athlete. So I know that you've been spending a lot of time on another athletic endeavor. Do
2: you want to tell us a little bit about that? So I am a competitive power lifter, and this is actually a pretty serious hobby. Like I bake cookies sometimes for fun, or I go for walks, or I do yoga. <laughs> I also do Muay Thai boxing, totally for fun. But powerlifting is a pretty serious hobby. It, it's we're, My husband and I both do it. And it, I initially wasn't uh, a serious powerlifter, but I started powerlifting about three and a half years ago. And I started because I had a lot of back pain working with a microscope. I think a lot of pathologists have the same pain. It's in the upper, it's like right between the scapulas. And so it, it waxes and wanes depending on how much I work at the microscope. So my back hurt. My husband had started working with a trainer at Equinox. And so he said, oh, you should work with this trainer. It'd be really fun. I'd always, I'd lifted weights in high school and college because I was in track and volleyball. And so that was sort of complementary to my sports. I never did it as a competitive thing, but I always loved it. I really loved it. And then when I had babies, I stopped being very active and I was busy with residency and medical school. I had my children during, and then, you know, starting on faculty, I was very busy, but my back hurt. And he's like, this trainer is really great. You should check her out. So I started working with this trainer and immediately She felt that deadlifts were going to be very helpful for for back pain, which is true. The one strategy is to make a stronger back. And so I started working with her. We were just squatting, deadlifting, bench press. Those are the three main lifts in powerlifting, but we were doing all sorts of other lifting too. And I loved it and I was getting strong. And my husband had already been competing at this point because when I was in my fellowship in Rochester, Minnesota my husband started competing in powerlifting for just something to do because he's just a big, strong guy. And so he'd been competing and he was about ready to compete in a meet. And I had been training with her for about six months. And he said, well, you're really strong. You should give it a try. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'll really like it. I was like, you know, I do a lot of academic work and I get, you know, because he loves the co- the competition and having the goals. And I said, you know, I get that from my <laughs> academic work. I'm very busy and focused on that. I don't really need something to distract me. I said, but I, it was like, what the heck? I'll just give it a try. I'll always be willing to try something. So I tried it and I loved it. I loved it. I wasn't very good. I just walked into the meet. I had no idea what I was doing other than sort of the basics of, you know, you go to the platform when they say it's your name and you pick a number. So I would just go on there and pick a number that looked okay by the (laughs) pound. I I didn't have a coach, but I was pretty strong. I don't even remember what my best lifts were that day. They weren't that great, but I had a really fun time. And so then I said, well, let's, I think I want to do this. And so I decided to work with a powerlifting coach. So I moved to a powerlifting gym, which there was one at the time in Long Island city, which is right by my place on Roosevelt Island. And I, then I started working with a nutrition coach to work on my macros. And then I got ready for my second meet. So my second meet, I deadlifted 300 pounds. And I was, a, I was a, exactly 125.6 pounds that day when I did that. So I thought, Hmm, I think I might be okay at this. <laughs> and what happened was that day, my total was, I think in kilograms. Now i completely converted to kilograms. I train in kilograms. At that time, my total was 302.5.
1: In kilograms.
2: In kilograms. That's and the national qualifying total for my weight class in the open weight class, which is for anybody, all ages, it's the most competitive weight class. Cause it's for anyone was 305. Hmm. So I thought, well, I'm going to qualify for nationals. And so that became my goal. And I just really got into it. And then a year later, they, they changed the totals, they kept upping the totals. So I actually didn't qualify in open. But a year later, since I turned 40, I qualified for nationals in the master one division, which is when they start taking into consideration age, <laughs> So master is just a nice way of saying old lifters. <laughs> and uh, so I qualified for nationals in the master one and I competed at nationals. And my, my total at this point was so much better. I had put like 50 kilos on my total. My total was 355.7 or 357.5 at that meet. And I ended up taking second place among the 40 to 50 year old women. The woman who took first place was turning 50 the following year in 2020. And so she was not allowed to be on the national team in the Master One category because at the international meet in 2020, she would be 50. So she mm-hmm. was moved up to the next category. And so then they take the next person. So I was on the national team in 2020, and I was preparing to compete at the World Powerlifting Meet in uh, South Africa which was going to be in like the first week of April in 2020.
1: Mm, yes.
2: <laughs> so I'm preparing for this meet. My, my lifts are you know, increasing. I'm getting really strong. And then the meet was canceled. Yeah. And then not only was the meet canceled, the gyms closed down. I couldn't go to my gym anymore. We didn't know that it was going to be a five-month shutdown. The gyms right. in New York closed for five months. Yeah. So after about four weeks, I asked my coach, can I take some things from the gym? He said, oh, sure. So mm-hmm. I took some dumbbells and kettlebells home and I did that for a couple of weeks. And then when it became really serious, I said, can I take a barbell home and a rack <laughs> and some plates? He said, take whatever you need. So a friend of mine has a big car. We drove across the river. We went into the gym. We took all the things we needed. Uh, And so we were able to do powerlifting training here in our condo. So I ended up using the gym equipment until they needed it again. And he said, when we open back up, you know, bring it back, which was fine. And so that wasn't till August. Wow. (laughs) We trained at home and we ended up, I actually had my best lifts ever in June of 2020 because we did a, a max out at home to sort of because I had been building the way you train in powerlifting is you're building to get to your max lifts at a meet. So I was building for worlds, but then I never had an opportunity to see what I could do. And then once you have your max lifts, all of your training is a percentage of your max. So in order to keep progressing, it's good to know every once in a while what your max is, like every six months or so. So we planned a little max out in my condo. And that day, I was about 134 pounds that day. I wasn't at my competition weight because it didn't make sense to cut weight for that. But I squatted 325 pounds. Oh my God, that's crazy. I best crossed 150 (laughs) or so. And then I deadlifted, it must have been 300 and... 40 that day. So and then since then, my best deadlift is 370, which I did a couple weeks ago at the gym. I was That's so amazing.
1: And then I, and amazing. my best
2: bench is like 160. And then after the gyms opened up again, and powerlifting meets were allowed to start again, they made a rule that At local meets, people can set American records because they didn't have any Mm. more national meets. Mm. So they allowed people to set national records at local meets if a national level judge was there. So in October of 2019, I got the American record in squat for my weight class in the 40 to 50 year old division, Wow, which was 315 pounds. So that was really, really fun. Wow. So now my husband and I were still really into it. It's fun. We can actually have national meets again. They actually had a world meet again. But my husband's also very good. He has an American record in his squat. His American record is 750
1: pounds. Oh my Lord. That's just <laughs> insane. He just keeps saying these like huge numbers. I'm like, I was not aware I'm obviously not a power lifter or athletic in any way but I was like I wasn't aware it was possible for humans to lift
2: that much. It's such a cool thing and the thing is like you don't really know until you start doing it how strong you can get. It helps to have really good programming and good coaching. I mean obviously I practice these lifts every week so I train four days, and so I'm squatting very regularly and i've learned how to do the movement in the most efficient way. So that helps, right? If you have really good technique. But and then also over time your body just adapts and with really smart programming you can get really strong. And you don't even need to put on a lot of size because a lot of like i'm not a big person yeah. and i don't really look strong, but but you can get strong. So it's really <laughs> fun. It's really fun and it's just such a cool thing i think especially for women because Everyone thinks you know athletics is sort of a man's thing, which really it isn't. So it's great for women in terms of just having an athletic opportunity, but it's just really wonderful to be thinking about like what can my body do? How strong can I get? Rather than focusing on like how does my body look?
1: Mm, yeah.
2: How small can I get? <laughs> yeah. It's much, yeah. More, it's much more empowering to think about how strong can I get? You can get really strong. And women, they've shown. For the same weight size, like if you weigh the same as a man, for lower body strength like squat and deadlift, women are pretty equivalent to men in terms of our potential. So it's really cool. Women can be really strong, and there are (laughs) women. There are women my size who are bench pressing 200 pounds. Oh my gosh! Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I love that. That's such a wonderful message. Is instead of focusing on what your body looks like, focus on what it can do, and that's such a healthier way to approach life and inhabiting this body
2: right and you can do that with any sort of activity it doesn't have to be powerlifting it's just the one that i i love to do uh, more than any other but i think that outlook is applicable to any sort of activity and then the other thing is is focusing on what feels good like it feels good to be strong it feels good to be active and that I think is really motivating because as you get older, you want to do things that feel good in general. It's just, is you know, things start to hurt when you get older. So I have to do you think, has it helped with your back pain um, related to the microscope? It has. It wasn't like a magic solution. One of the issues is that I'm doing a lot of repetitive movement with the glass slides like that is something that isn't going away. I notice if I'm off service or if I'm on vacation or I leave for a meeting, my back Mm -hmm. starts to feel really good. Yeah, (laughs) And yeah. And I'm really busy. I feel it again, but it's much better than it has been. So I do think it has helped to become stronger. And my upper back is still an area in terms of powerlifting that we're really working on because everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And my, one of my weaknesses is my upper back strength. And so we were still really working on it and building it. But the other thing I found helpful is that during the pandemic, I no longer could get a massage, which was is something that I love to do. And there's a lot of massage places mm-hmm. around here that are really wonderful and they're not very expensive. So but but I couldn't go for five mm-hmm. months. And actually it was longer. The massage places opened up much later than the gyms. Yeah. And so I did a lot of yoga. They have digital yoga now. And that actually really helped my back quite a bit. I think there's a lot of activities that can be really helpful, but it's really hard to fight the chronic overuse when you're mm-hmm.
1: No, I have absolutely the same thing. If I'm at a meeting or off service, I notice it gets way better. And I think that's why it got so bad during the pandemic because I was never on vacation. I was never you know, going to a meeting. I was always sitting at my office doing cases even more than usual. So I think that's helpful to think about it more intentionally of what can you do to build your strength? You know, you can practice pathology till you're 80, but you have to protect your back and your body yeah, so that you can do yeah. it if, if if you want to do pathology till you're 80.
2: And that was really um, motivating for me. Like, If I train, I did feel better and feeling better... <laughs> Very motivating (laughs) at a certain age. (laughs) And it's really fun. I mean, the thing about powerlifting and strength training and training in general is you see the progress is very objective. It's the weight on the bar. And in the beginning, most people, especially if they've never trained before, will rapidly progress. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very fun. Every week you can put more weight on the bar. And so it's just very reinforcing. And then the other thing is that when you're under the bar, you can't think about anything else. (laughs) Some people say, yeah. oh, I go running to get my mind off work. I'm like, I can mm-hmm. think about everything while I'm running, like everything. I can think about lots of things. <laughs> but when I have 300 pounds on my back, yeah, <laughs> which I'm going to have close to today in my training, I can't think about anything. <laughs> during my training sessions, I pretty much unplug. I'm not really online at all. And uh, during my sets, I'm so focused on what I'm doing that I think it's just a really good break from everything, from the kids, from everything, because you're just so focused and then you have that whatever time it is 45 minutes hour and a half a couple times a week where you don't really have to think about anything but just the barbell and what you're doing and it's just a really good break
1: almost like a mindfulness meditation but with a lot of weights
2: yeah you have to be in the moment you have to be mindful
1: (laughs) (laughs) i can imagine that would be the case so that is awesome that is awesome So uh, just to close off, I always like to ask people, what is their favorite piece of advice?
2: I think for me, I tend to not necessarily do what people tell me to do. (laughs) I do what I want to do. And I think it's really helpful because if I had done what people told me to do, I never would have gone into pathology. I never would have moved to New York to take a faculty position at MSK. I never would have probably become a competitive power lifter. I think (laughs) (laughs) the most important thing is try to identify what you want and what you're passionate about and what motivates you and what's enriching to you and follow that rather than the opinions of others, because you're not going to enjoy your life and succeed at things. If you're not pursuing things that you're truly passionate about.
1: I love it. I love it.
2: Well, it has been so
1: great chatting with you. And for all our listeners, if you do want to check out Dr. Souter's amazing powerlifting, she's on Instagram at Jennifer And she is definitely the real deal. Again, you can find her on Twitter at JL underscore Souter, And we'll make sure to drop some of her papers in the show notes as well. Thank you so very much, Dr. Satter, for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for all you do to help lead the way in thoracic pathology, cytopathology, and powerlifting. Thank you.
0: Support for the free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.